Well, hello, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us at Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, every week, uh, we invite a special guest, sometimes guests, and we look at the key issues facing the Middle East today, and we look at other global issues too. Uh, and we invite all of you to get involved, to send in your questions, tell us who you are, tell us where, where you're sending your questions in from. We have people from all over the world getting in touch every week. And uh, this week, I'm, I'm particularly pleased to introduce my old friend and comrade, Ian Williams. Um, Ian and I go back 30 odd years, I guess. Uh, Ian, what? I can't hear. <laughs> it's that long that Ian's hearing has gone. But Ian is the, is the president of the Foreign Press Association in New York, which is where he is. I'm, uh, I'm based here in Britain. Uh, I used to be the uh, UN diplomatic correspondent for Al Jazeera when it set up. Uh, I then went to work for Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon and for the President of the General Assembly uh, two years ago, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Ian has had a long connection with the United Nations as well. Uh, he was president of the UN Correspondents Association. He has a regular column on the Washington Report for Middle East Affairs. In fact, when I first met Ian, he used to say, and he still can say probably, that he had more columns than the Parthenon. Uh, he was there uh, before he moved to the United States uh, 30 years ago uh, at the Independent newspaper when it started. And also, for the purposes of our discussions today and later on when we get to the uh, current crisis in the British Labour Party, uh, Ian was uh, an executive member of what was the National Union of Railwaymen, which is now the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, and a speechwriter to Neil Kinnock. Um, Ian and I have been uh, comparing uh, our records because we've both been members of the Labour Party. We both discovered today that we joined in 1977. So that gives us 86 years of Labour Party membership between ourselves. Anyway, we're not going to talk about the Labour Party to begin with because actually there are rather more pressing and important uh, issues and primarily the upcoming uh, US presidential elections um, and in particular uh, what the elections could mean for uh, the Middle East peace process such that it is what it could mean for Palestine uh, and for the Middle East in general and I know Ian just by start just perhaps we can begin um, recently you had uh, former US UN Ambassador John Bolton, a former Secretary of State, uh, you interviewed him. John Bolton, of course, has emerged as something of a critic of uh, Trump. Um, tell us something about uh, you know, Bolton's thinking about Trump and whether or not uh, having Trump having someone like Bolton biting not just at his ankles but all over him is actually going to cause him damage. Uh, well, remarkably little, as far as it seems, because John Bolton's big bag is foreign policy. And most Trump voters don't care about foreign policy. Uh, even more, you know, uh, salient. Uh, two weeks ago, we interviewed John Brennan, who uh, the former CIA director. And he ended up, it's well worth looking, uh, it was quite surprising. I always thought when I was interviewed by the CA that the lights would be pointed in the opposite direction, but I was asking the questions this time. And uh, he was very forthright. He said, there's no justice, there's gonna be no peace in the Middle East until the rights of the Palestinians are secured. And I must say, it's music to my ears uh, for a CIA director to be saying this, um, since none of, us, uh, none of us have fond memories of the CIA, but, at least they've got the intelligence and they know how it works. And I think that's the key problem with Trump. The intelligence comes and he doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, people come with him and say, this is the situation. And then somebody comes along with a big check and he says, no, I prefer that situation. It, it's as John Bolton said, and as uh, John Brennan said, it's transactional politics. Yes, so but he's it's not extraordinary. concerned about justice or freedom for the Palestinians yeah. or anybody else. Sure, but, but don't you think it's almost, it's quite extraordinary that we look in these straightened weird times that John Bolton as almost being a voice for sense and moderation? Well, I, look, I've been following John Bolton before anyone knew who he was at the UN. Um, 30 years ago, I was writing about him because he was the 
number one UN beta for the Heritage Foundation. And no, he was, or he started off on completely skewy, skewed premises, but his, his reasoning, his rationality, he was rational. He wasn't just a mass of, uh, you know, prejudices and uh, reflex, reflexive gestures to checks and donors. You know, I don't, I don't, he, he, in his own way, he has principles. They mightn't be my principles or your principles, but he does have them. And I think that's the problem with the Trump administration is they don't have any principles. Their principle is, I want to stay in power. Everything else is commentary and they'll do whatever it takes. And frankly, unless the Palestinians can persuade him that they're going to have a huge influence on the election, they're not, he's not going to take any notice of them at all. Well, and I'm, I've just been looking, in fact, at the figures because um, looking since, since we're dwelling on these many decades, when I first came here, Arab Americans were not very involved in politics. They kept their heads down because they were accused of anti-Semitism the minute they poked their heads above the parapet. But I've just been looking at the poll by John Zogby, who, is, who has done wonders over the years to get the Arab Americans involved. And only 5% of them had Palestine as their, one of their big issues. It was all domestic politics, which is the way it should be. It was sensible. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, um, for people watching this, of course, I mean, you're in New York. Um, you're very connected with a lot of the people in the Democratic Party um, and in uh, the Democratic Party, the Workers' Family Party in New York and the trade unions and what have you, a long connection. So, uh, and I remember at the time of the last presidential elections, uh, you and I were rather doubtful about the polls and, um, and thought that Trump had every chance of winning and thought they probably would. And, uh, and sadly, we were proved right for, for where we're coming from. But what's your, what's your take on it now? There have been consistent poll leads for Biden, but of course this isn't a general election, and there are all sorts of other issues which are, maybe you can tell us about because a lot of people don't know, both to suppression and how it is that the, the elections vary from state to state, how they actually do it. So have you got a prediction, and can you tell us what do you think could actually happen if, if Trump loses by a small margin, for instance? Well, we have... Um... <laughs> One doesn't like to quote him, but uh, Comrade Joseph Stalin the, <laughs> from the Soviet Union, he once issued the immortal words, it's not who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes. <laughs> and that's, the, that's precisely the position we have here. Um, Democrat politics in, uh, in the US has been very much about personalities, about whether you want Hillary, about whether you want Obama, about whether you want Biden. Um, Trump has used that, but the ideologues in the, in the Republican Party, they want power. And they've been working on it for decades. They've stacked everything from the school boards onwards. They've stacked local courts. They've stacked the state courts. They've stacked the federal courts. And now they've stacked the Supreme Court. And it's in anticipation of precisely what we're talking about. There is very likely to be a highly contested election. I mean, people pay lip service to the Constitution, but it is a 250-year-old, creaky, inefficient machine that was built by slave owners. And it shows every sign of its manufacturing date and, and provenance every time these issues come up. So the electoral system, the decision for actually translating your vote in the ballot box to Washington is incredibly tortuous, incredibly complicated. And well if I may, can I because Florida, if you recall, the, uh, the, the, when, when Bush won, it was on the basis of a contested election in Florida. It boiled down to a few thousand votes in reality and to the, the notorious hanging chads issue about the ballot papers and, and ruling ballot papers out if the, if, the, if the whole piece of paper hadn't been knocked out by the punch. The hanging you know, chads. Can you explain, just explain to, to us, if you can, you know, how it works let's say Florida or Pennsylvania, two key battleground states. How does, it's not a general election, so how does it actually work? The voters vote for delegates. Um, they, they, they vote for delegates to the, electoral, uh, to, to the electoral body in Washington. And when they vote for them, uh, there are several stages. First of all, they have to get them elected. Then there's the question of whether the state certifies the vote. So you have issues in Pennsylvania or Florida or where you might have 
a democratic uh, a, a, dem a democratic governor but you've got a republican local legislature you have a you have republican judges you have um, a republican secretary of state so each of these people have to certify the vote that this was what the vote was this was what was counted this is what we're taking with us to the um, electoral to, to the electoral college and there's plenty of room for each of them to put their finger on it and you know one of the scenarios being rationally discussed is whether or not all they have to do in pennsylvania for example is to delay the vote mm. if they delay the vote then the republican legislature can move in and appoint their people to the electoral college or you know in, in florida the governor can appoint people which is practically what he practically what he did last time um so you you've got um it, it is not a popular vote and what distresses me is for the last few elections no one's even tried to pretend it is no one tried to pretend that this is a reflection of the popular will uh, they've said well okay this is the system the state voted this way the governor voted that way and and this is what the law says and, and, and the, the law is an ass as it so often is on these things the, the law is not concerned yeah. about individual voters the system can actually vary from state to state and um you know, but it's interesting, we, we hear uh, lots, we have lots of uh, commentators, lots of people who like to believe that they're experts who follow these American elections every time, but they never ever explain how it works. And for instance, you know, Florida, we were just talking about, you could have, let's say, 45% of the votes going to uh, the Democratic Party in Florida or the Republican Party, but that they would get every single delegate seat in the, the whole of the state, the whole lot, they get the whole lot. Um, and people don't have, and that, so so it's so I suppose going back to these polls, which have put Biden ahead, um, quite by quite high margins at some times. Um, what is your feeling from from what you're picking up? And what about these this early voting? When the 60, 70 odd million people who have already voted, does that what does that tell you? I mean, do you can you? It's always a danger looking at a crystal ball, but I mean, since you got it right last time, you might get it right this time. A crystal ball is very, very murky, and I'd say it was still in the balance. Um, you know, there, there are multiple factors. Just take the candidates. The people who vote for Trump will vote for him anyway. He correctly called it. He could go and shoot someone on Times Square, and he would get away with it. And we've seen these people uh, out there. There, is, um, there are circuits missing. You know, he gets up and says that COVID doesn't exist, and then he goes ill with it. And then he says, we've got the best COVID treatments in the world for a disease that a few months before he said didn't exist. The people will come and vote for him. I mean, we are talking about a degree of brainwashing that makes uh, the North Koreans look like amateurs in comparison. So um, it, 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 is, it, it is stunning. On the other hand, we have Joe Biden and nobody, um, Joe Biden does not move the soul. He does not move the blood. <laughs> he, he's not going to get people on the streets. When people vote for Joe Biden, they mostly do so because he's not Donald Trump. And, you know, in leadership, you not being Donald I'm not Donald Trump. You're not Donald Trump. But <laughs> we're, the, the, this is insufficient qualification for the highest office in, yeah. the, in the country, if not the land. Of course, and, being and so, help in America, where there is still no... Uh, Brits in any form of public office to this day since the revolution. No, no, I would never dream of. I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger can come there and sound like Dr. Strangelove on the... <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> in a bad, in a bad World War movie. But he, he, he can get places, no problem. But a yeah. British accent is... Uh, they've never forgiven us. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, no, t take, taking it all together is that um, it's very polis. And the Republicans... They're very acute, and they're much—they're actually much more sophisticated in their application of practical politics than the Democrats are. They—they they have worked very solidly on voter suppression. Remember, it's not like in Britain where somebody comes round and says who lives here and puts you down on the electoral register. To go to the electoral register, most places you have to go there. In many states, you have to produce a driving license or ID, which not everybody has. To be enrolled on the on the register, there are Republicans who employed people to go over the registers. For example, they did a comparison. If your name was uh, Mark Seddon and there was a Mark Seddon living across the border in Georgia, 
you were wiped from the register on the assumption you were being double counted. Mm. You, no one told you they were doing this. It was only when you turned up on vote election day. And of course, they applied these very selectively, much more, much more fervently in minority areas where they yes. were counted on to vote Democrat. But this is, this is a century and a half of techniques ever since the Civil War. They've worked on voter suppression. They used to work on suppressing the voters directly. Now they work on voter suppression, well, making sure I mean, that people can't you, vote. You, you would know, Ian, that there's a, there's a, there are a myriad of different ways of voter suppression uh, amongst the African uh, American population that they, that they use. But I was, even I was staggered when the other year I learned about the voter suppression in Native American communities where people were actually prevented from presenting their credentials because they didn't have addresses, full postal addresses with streets you know, from the reservation. So anything, anything goes. So that's going to be a big thing to watch out for, I guess. Um, but, but moving on, let's just say for the sake of argument, um, Trump uh, wins again. Um, where does that leave uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East and specifically Israel, Palestine? Um, I don't know. It depends. Possibly heading to Armageddon. It all depends on how stable you think these relationships are. I mean, anybody who really puts their faith on um, tribal, uh, sort of tribal family businesses like Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, where, by the way, where they were shooting people on the streets recently, where none of them have a popular mandate from their own population. And to assume that this presages peace in the Middle East rather than a business transaction between a crooked cabal of sheikhs and, and Netanyahu and, and Trump is another story entirely. Um, so it, it's, it, it, whatever the situation is, it's going to, like John Brennan says, if there's no justice for the Palestinians, then in the end, there isn't going to be peace. It might be the burning issue, but there are reasons why uh, the Arab world counts Palestine as a major issue. It's because it's the same reason that all across the black world, people thought South Africa was a hot button issue because people were being oppressed because of their, national, their, their, their ethnicity. Mm. And that's the way most Arabs see it. They see the Palestinians are being abused and mistreated because they are Arabs. And uh, you know, ex ex exceptionally, in addition, because they're, they're Palestinians. So th th this makes it a hot button issue that even if it's not the issue, it's always going to be there. And these governments that have signed peace treaties with the Arabs are going to pay a price. Uh, yeah. The Jordanian population has never reconciled itself. Uh, you know, the, the, the Hashemites are under continual pressure from their people about the ties with Israel. In Egypt, it's, not, it's still not popular. For, you know, years after all of this kissing and hobnobbing on the lawn, the Egyptians remember Israelis, uh, remember Israel, what it did. And they are not happy with the peace treaty. Um, they're happy not to be at war, of course, as anybody would be, especially if we keep losing them. But it's not—it's um, it, it, not—it's it's not good. CC isn't there because he's elected. He's there because he's a crook with the army and the U.S. behind him. Don't forget, we have in the United States about a quarter of the population declaring themselves as evangelicals. Um, these are the people that lay hands on the president, by the way, and, the, and say that he's the chosen one. And Donald Trump believes it. Uh, but of course, you know, a lot of these policies have been fashioned for them, whether it's the Supreme Court or anti make, making the abortion laws even stronger. But when it comes to the Middle East and Trump's deal of the century, if you recall, I mean, does, this must play quite well with all of them. The recognition of Jerusalem as the capital, uh, the, 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 the peace deals. I mean, you know, most evangelicals probably couldn't tell you exactly where, you know, Bahrain is or the UAE is, but that sounds good to them. So, so it has been helpful to, to Trump, though, hasn't it? Well, this, this week, he's carrying on this week. He, this week, he's uh, de facto recognized settlements. He's making sure U.S. government funds are available for scientific re research in settlements in the West Bank. He's just changed the administrative ruling. The State Department refused to put uh, Israel on the passport of uh, even, a, even a Jew who was born in Jerusalem. They said it was he was born in Jerusalem, and they didn't specify which country. Which, under international law, of course, is the position. It's the it's waiting for the final settlement to be allocated to the 
the Jewish state or the Arab state or any combination of them. It's technically UN territory, but I don't think anyone's <laughs> handing it over to um, Guterres just yet. Um, so it, it's, it's, he, he's, he's persisting in this. He's getting the results. And this is the other bit, the disconnect between voting and political effect. Um, he has some diehard Zionists and Likudniks, Sheldon Adelson, who pay him huge checks. They bankroll him in a huge way and do business with him that makes money to get these results. Uh, they bankroll settlements. And yet the one group, never mind the evangelicals, that is completely disenchanted with Trump is the American Jewish community. Something like 70% of American Jews do not like Trump and do not want him under any circumstances. They see him for the threat he is, and they see the evangelicals for the threat they are, because, um, you know, if you've been a persecuted people for, for millennia, then you recognize it when somebody says that one of the conditions for the coming back of Christ is a, a huge war <laughs> and, and, and your conversion to Christianity, which is what the, the evangelicals are offering the Jews at the moment. Well, any Jew who knows about this is going to think twice about it, no matter how uh, irreligious they are. I don't want to become a Christian, and I don't want to be at the centre of, of World War Three. Thank you very much. So, so Biden, of course, I mean, people, you know, who don't really know about America won't, won't appreciate that the, the significance of religion and affiliation in, in America. Um, Biden, of course, is a Catholic, um, and in recent years, a lot of Catholic voters have been supporting Trump. Um, but do you think that uh, he will have enough of a coalition of support um, in the African-American community and Jewish community and Catholics and none of the above uh, to, actually, to actually break through this time? And what if he does, if he does, if there is a Biden presidency, what would that mean to the Middle East? Do they stop recognizing Israel's capital as being Jerusalem? Is there gonna, are there going to be any changes or is it going to be much the same? Um. Frankly, I think some of the more sort of outlying positions of the Trump administration will be walked back to harmonize with international law where they've got an excuse. Um, the State Department has spent 20 or 30 years in a very resolute fight to maintain international law in the face of pressure from various White Houses, Clinton's White House and uh, from Albright State Department and the others as well. You know, the politicians instinctively pander to Israel because of the donors, not because of American Jewish uh, voters. And then um, they, f they find that the, the State Department is saying, but, you know, we're supposed to be upholding international law and this breaches it. So you, you, you get it, they get tied up in knots on this. What um, Trump has done is to cut the Gordian knot. He's just basically said, no, we're going to do this. He's issued presidential decrees regardless of advice and regardless of the dangers that have been pointed out to him. And, you know, the, the, the State Department's been left trying to clear up the mess after them. But like I said, with, with um, John Brennan, a former CIA, he's saying, no, this is dangerous. This is what Trump is doing is, is, is in breach of our obligations, international obligations, and not good for us or the Middle East. And many Israelis say this is not good for Israel either. So, um, but this is single issue politics I and mean, you mentioned there a lot of people will vote for trump on the abortion issue now I, you know one hesitates to say this but one suspects that several of his girlfriends in the past have availed themselves of this illegality <laughs> yeah you know i mean look at the guy look at his record yeah. <laughs> in between paying hush money he's probably paid surgery money to several of them over the years if necessary seem to be quite prepared to look at to, to, to look away from the the porn star mistress the multiple wives the the fact that the guy doesn't pay federal taxes the, the, the whole gamut and um, this is the one of the most extraordinary things for the for the world as it looks on to see this uh, you know deeply committed fervent religious people with such high standards prepared to you know to 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 have another Jerry Falwell at the at the White House but um, but there we are um, we must see what happens but in the meantime the one last question I'll ask you what before we move on is about the um, I suppose about the the Palestinian leadership uh, and its ability to move with the times and to move on to the next chapter, um, whether it's Biden or Trump. 
because over the weeks when we've been talking to many people, many Palestinians, they have actually raised this. You know, this is big, an issue. The Palestinian leadership is, seems increasingly sclerotic. Um, what must happen? That's being polite. What's my, what must They're happen? They're even older than us, Mark. <laughs> what must happen, do you think, for the, for the Palestinians to, to get their confidence back and get a, a political leadership that bites and that has effect? Um, well, they're talking about elections, uh, you know, and they, they've fallen into several traps or they've been caught by several circumstances. I mean, one of the things that the Israelis and their allies are very good at is demonizing people. So Hamas is a terrorist group. When it wins an election, you can't allow them to take their seats, which devalues elections. And then you're left with uh, the sort of president for life uh, in Palestine, who may have won an election once, but nobody dares hold another election. How do you hold an election in Gaza Strip? Uh, and how do you do it when, you're not, when people in Jerusalem aren't allowed to vote and the diaspora aren't allowed to vote? And you get this whole hazy post-Oslo situation of um, is the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the Palestinian government and the Palestinian Authority. It gets as complicated as the Holy Trinity, working out which avatar, which, um, which manifestation anyone is dealing with at any time. Uh, and certainly the Palestinian Authority has become very much of a client state. It's a it is literally a Bantustan. It's allowed its own armed forces and, and, and police as long as they are directed against internal, in, internal subversion, against threats to Israel. I mean, the Israelis don't want to see the Palestinian Authority dissolve because the Palestinian Authority is policing the Palestinians, is policing the, uh, the West Bank on their behalf. It's maintaining the social services, which is occupying power, they would have to do. And yes, there's all the wrestling, and we're not taking the tax money. We're not. We 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 won't take the money. We'll we'll lay people off. You have to give us, um, you know, the appropriate uh, the, the appropriate honours and dignity. Um, in the end, the Palestinians have got to get their act together and elect a, a genuinely representative new leadership. Um, um, Mightn't even, might even have the same policies to some extent, as long as they don't collaborate too closely with Israel. But they can't, be, they can't pretend to speak on behalf of the Palestinian people until there's an election. I mean, certainly this, uh, there's, there's been a kind of uh, a, a, a retreat in many different ways and a sort of a, a decline in, in confidence amongst uh, the supporters of the Palestinian cause around the world. And, this, and in particular, when we talk to people in the West Bank and Gaza and what have you, uh, you know, a real feeling of despondency, of powerlessness, that these things, you know, the, I mean, until a few months ago, until this agreement was signed with the UAE and Bahrain, uh, you know, the, the Netanyahu is going to have another land grab sanctioned by the United States, 30% of, uh, of, of, of what was remaining of the Bantustan that is the West Bank. Um, but those, and this brings me on to what we're going to talk about next, those who have stood up very strongly for Palestinian rights, for instance, that those who have campaigned for uh, sanctions against uh, Israeli companies operating in the occupied territories, are, are facing pushback, um, particularly in the United Kingdom, in Britain, where I am, but also in the United States as well. Um, the whole uh, argument about Palestinian rights has become mired very often um, in all sorts of arguments around uh, anti-Semitism, uh, and it has meant that, for instance, um, you know, there's been a lack of uh, a lot of political figures who might normally have been standing up very loudly for Palestinians have gone quiet. Now, recently, you're probably aware in this country, um, a prominent Labour Party backbencher, Stephen Kinnock, who is the son of the former of Neil Kinnock, whose speeches you used to write, uh, Stephen Kinnock, um, who is a foreign affairs spokesperson got up and was very critical of the Israeli legal Israeli settlements in the West Bank and said that uh, Britain, a Labour government, should uh, not be allowing trading with companies operating uh, in, these, in this fashion. He was, by all accounts, according to the Middle East Monitor and other uh, publications, pulled in front of uh, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, Keir Starmer, and the foreign, Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, and told in no uncertain terms that he mustn't speak out. 
And this seemed quite an extraordinary situation. Now, what, what do you make of that? Well, it's, it comes down to the very complex issue of anti-Semitism and Jewish Labour Party relations, which are, um, for a start, almost everybody of the old socialist type has um, inhibitions. We're all, we were all ancestrally horrified about the Holocaust. Uh, many of our families were involved in fighting the Nazis. My own father was renowned for uh, knocking Oswald Mosley off a perch in Liverpool at one point. Um, the neighbours told me about it proudly. Um, so there's this great tradition. So to be accused of anti-Semitism is almost like, it's, it's to have your battery taken out. This is so unthinkable. Um, the, the, the accusation that it really does give people serious pause for thought. And that went on for many, many years. Um, we now tend to forget that uh, great luminaries on the left in Britain, like Eric Heffer and Tony Benn, were card-carrying members of the Labour Friends of Israel. Because they were friends of Ian Mikado, who was the founder of the Labour Friends of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, Ian Mikado was very left-wing, but very deeply Zionist. Uh, you know, you have to get much later to the era of um, Kauf, Gerald Kaufman, very, who was once a member of the Board of Deputies, who spoke up very, very eloquently about the Palestinians and will probably be expelled from the Labour Party now for saying so, because we've discovered that being devotedly Jewish, devotedly Jewish, is absolutely no just, no, um, it's not taken as an alibi in any way for being accused of anti-Semitism. So that's the issue. People don't defend themselves vigorously enough. The, you know, they're, they're defensive about it. So I do believe Jeremy Corbyn was far too defensive. Instead of being aggressive when confronted with his accusations, he succumbed and he gave them, you know, a letter in there. Well, and I'm now setting I mean, myself... I mean, you've kind of, you've kind of leapt ahead of things um, a bit uh, because, you know, we, you, you and I, uh, we were talking about this earlier, you know, we, uh, we actually we discovered today that we both joined the Labour Party in the same year, 1977, which gives us 86 years membership between us. Doesn't mean to say that we are sage and wise about everything, but we have seen a lot of things. Uh, and um, I think that you and I also, because I was based in the United States, you were also chair of the New York Labour Party branch. I mean, and I was on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party. You worked for Neil Kinnock. I worked for Gordon Brown when he was special uh, envoy for global education. Um, I, I was editor of Tribune. You, you were Tribune's longest uh, ever columnist. So, uh, you know, we have been intricately caught up with the Labour, British Labour Party for 86 years between us. Um, and of course, people would be very dismissive if, uh, if we were to say, well, in all of that time, we really didn't come across anti-Semites in the Labour Party, but they should believe us when we say that we didn't, which is not to say that uh, there are not anti-Semites in the Labour Party, because there clearly are. Uh, but, the, but I suppose what all of this boils down to is that um, when uh, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, stood for the leadership of the Labour Party, you and I are not Corbynistas, we're Tribunites, uh, but we both came to the conclusion that you know, if you wanted a leader that was not going to be, uh, you know, pro-war and, and neoliberal and was going to break from the new Labour trajectory, then Corbyn was the last person standing. And hopefully Corbyn would then, you know, uh, and his people would try and find adequate successors that people could vote for. None of that happened. Um, but instead, what we saw from afar and back here, too, was a really the, what we've talked about is Labour circular firing squad. Uh, and the what has been called the the weaponization of uh, the whole issue around the Middle East, anti-Semitism, Palestine, Israel, to such an extent uh, that it's actually led, as we know, now know, to uh, a report by the uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission, something set up by a Labour government that has actually found um, that, that there has been anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, it's been inadequately dealt with, but things improved. Um, but the net result of all of this to cut, uh, this is the longest question ever, is that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, former leader of the Labour Party, has been suspended from the Labour Party because he actually thought that the report was uh, exaggerated. 
This is an extraordinary situation where this issue has ended up kind of flooring a whole political party. So from where you're sitting, what do you make of it? Um, I'm appalled <laughs> because the positions have reversed. 30 years ago when I came to America, it was very difficult to talk about Palestinians. Uh, Andrew Young, the black ambassador, black American ambassador to the UN, was dismissed from his job because he was found to have had coffee with the uh, PLO representative there, whose daughter is a close friend of mine. In fact, I knew the ambassador himself, both ambassadors. So it's, um, it, it, was, it was an appalling continuous witch hunt, but things improved here. And uh, people are much more open to taking positions and the accusations of anti-Semitism really do not fly in the same way. But somehow, as you said, in the Labour Party, it's been completely weaponized. And um, a small group of, which we know is in close contact with the Israeli embassy, but to say that makes you uh, amenable to accusation as a, as a conspiracy theorist. But, you know, Al, Al Jazeera did a very good film and expose of the people involved confessing what they were doing. Uh, an, Isra an, an Israeli uh, officer from the Israeli mission was basically declared persona non grata, incidentally, because he was trying to unseat a conservative politician, not the Labour one at the time. But they carried on with the Labour Party and, and, and they've done that. And I know the people involved. I, I know the MPs involved. I know the people, many of them. I even know where they got their politics from originally. Uh, we were on side together at one point. Uh, in particular factional squabbles in the Labour Party, but they have been consistent. One of these people, incidentally, and I've got to tell this story, um, my, 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 I, I was in, in the House of Commons with a Palestinian and this Labour MP brightly pumped, oh, I've, I've, been to, I've been to Israel and they've shown me that I can get a passport because I've got a Jewish great-great-grandmother. And I said, well, bully for you. And, Nadia here was born in there, and she can't go. Mm. Her parents were born there. They can't go. So thank you very much for your passage. Oh, well, we're attending to that, she said. But, I mean, it is, this, it, it is fairly shameless, the way that they have uh, been partisan on it. And really, it's come to a, a, a break time, I think, where uh, what, what Jeremy Corbyn said was absolutely true. It has been grossly exaggerated. The report itself says it was grossly exaggerated. The report actually says that people should be allowed to express their opinions about the report. So the Labour Party is breaking its own, <laughs> breaking, the, breaking the conditions of the report by persecuting Jeremy Corbyn for saying so. This is a political vendetta. It's been an unholy coalition of the old right wing in the Labour Party and uh, the uh, and the pro-Israel lobby in there. And yes, you see, I mean, I did... The many, many Labour Party members, many, many Labour Party members who are Jewish and deeply concerned about the situation in the Middle East and pro-Palestinian. Their voices are very rarely heard. You might have seen um, Andrew Weinstein, the South African nationalist, uh, who is in from the African South African Party, um, speaking very eloquently on this. Uh, you know, he's his family all died in Auschwitz and he wasn't going to take any lectures from people uh, about anti-Semitism. And he put it firmly. Jeremy Corbyn was not anti-Semitic. Nothing he said was anti-Semitic. This has become uh, something to, to, to beat people with, clearly. And, and this is not to, I mean, this is not to disagree with the findings of the report or to say that there aren't, because I've seen anti-Semitic material on Twitter. It's not always immediately clear who's sending this material, by the way, but clearly people have within the Labour Party, there have been some people who have been involved in all of this. And part of the part of the findings of this report was actually things were a bit slow, but then improved substantially when uh, there was a new general secretary, one that was actually appointed by Jeremy Corbyn and uh, who was uh, much better at getting on with all of this. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, this issue has actually resulted in the suspension of a former Labour leader um, and, you know, a claim which he hasn't yet rebutted by going to law 
by, by some uh, such as Margaret Hodge that he himself is anti-Semitic. There's no evidence to suggest this whatsoever. But he has been now suspended from the Labour Party. It's the most astonishing thing. I mean, today we're learning that we think that the General Secretary of the Labour Party has actually had to bring in extra staff to deal with the huge volume of people who are resigning because they simply see an injustice taking place. Um, and uh, actually, um, I think what we should, well, I, I, what we ought to be clear is that Corbyn didn't say that the EHRC report was an exaggeration. He said that reports of the scale of anti-Semitism in Labour was. So he wasn't disagreeing with the report, he was actually saying that the scale of anti-Semitism was uh, exaggerated. And of course, you know, this is an issue, it's a big issue. There are also issues of, uh, of racism and Islamophobia, um, which, by the way, are not just found in the British Labour Party, but, you know, having grown up in, in, it's in amazing the, the background, it's extraordinary that the, the Conservative Party and other political parties seem to be completely empty of such people. But there we are. But what do you think? Um, where do you think this leaves the Labour Party? Keir Starmer was elected after this after this Corbyn interregnum, if you like, with this claim that he was going to unify the Labour Party, he was going to pull everybody together, uh, and uh, he was going to stick by the policies that uh, the Labour Party had, um, and, you know, that he could go on to win an election. Here we are in the middle of the, one of the biggest crises of our times, the biggest health crisis of our times, the British government is handling this particularly badly by most accounts, and the British Labour Party has actually succeeded in imploding. And uh, where, where next? Well, it's, um, you know, I'm a bit perplexed about Keir Starmer. Is he carrying out a ruthless right-wing purge? But I tend to think he doesn't have the strength of character to, to be a right-wing purger. I think he's being manipulated by other people, which is not to excuse him, because he's a barrister. He should know that what he's saying forensically uh, uh, and legally makes no sense at all and that if he stood up in a court and said it he would be lacerated by the opposition and by the judges which is likely to happen soon so the big question here for people like us is you know, by the way i joined the palestine solidarity committee even earlier than i joined the labor party so i've got some serious chops here on both counts uh, and have been waving the flag for a long time but my, our position has been for many years that the Labour Party was ours and we don't, you know, you can't just walk away from it. And, you know, now we're in the position where we've come back home and found our house has been burgled and the burglar's sitting there saying you can't come in or you can only come in on our circumstances. Well, you know, the, the time has come really to, to serve notice to the burglars to get out and... Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the clogging up of the emails at Labour Party headquarters. Uh, they don't say so, but it's quite clear it's people resigning and stopping it. And um, I, I am, uh, today I have suspended my membership of the Labour Party in solidarity. I have cancelled my standing order, which is due in January, and will not reinstate that until Jeremy Corbyn is readmitted to the Labour Party. And I'd almost like to add, with an apology, but I'd stick with him being readmitted to the Labour Party before I consider resuming my standard, standing order. And I would call upon lots of other people to do it because we're talking about people motivated by cash in Labour Party headquarters. So let's motivate them. Let us take the cash from them so that they can't give it to whistleblowers, <laughs> pro-Israeli whistleblowers in the Labour Party. They can't give it to Friends of the Jewish Chronicle. That, 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 that we have to take the cash away from them. It's, it's our well, money. You know, in, I mean, uh, I, we were talking about this earlier, you know, you and I joined the Labour Party in 1977. So that's about 86 years of membership. Uh, we've been through thick and thin. Um, and, uh, well, yes, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm, I'm just so appalled at what's happened. I'm actually going to do the same. I've got a Labour Party badge on here, which I'm now going to take off. As far as I'm concerned, I'm suspending myself. Um, and I shall send what I was going to send to the Labour Party, unless Jeremy Corbyn is reinstated, to his legal fund. Because that is probably, as you say, the only way we can make a difference. 
So you and I have just officially suspended ourselves from the Labour Party. Uh, we urge other people to do the same. Um, and let's see what they're going to do. Are they going to investigate us as well? While we're speaking, I've been rushing out a petition to change.org to get this position across for people to sign on. Um, my name is there. I didn't have time to get Mark's permission on there, but I'll see if I can interpose it afterwards, uh, that we are, we are doing this, that we are refusing to pay our dues until such time as uh, Keir Starmer reappoints, welcomes back Jeremy Corbyn to the Labour Party because it really is a crucial issue. I don't believe in single issue politics. I've voted for people who are pro-Israeli because they're good on other things. Jerry Nadler in the US, for example, in New York, very progressive on almost everything, except he was in hock to uh, the, some of the voters there and he was fairly toxic at one point on the Middle East. He's much better now. By perseverance, we got him over. Uh, so even though I don't believe in a single issue of politics, this is not a single issue. This issue is justice. It's justice for Jeremy Corbyn, it's justice it's, for the Labour Party, and it's justice for British people who feel that the Labour Party has been taken away from them, and justice for the Palestinians. Yes, ju justice and also freedom of speech, because um, as we were talking earlier, you and I are not Corbynistas. I'm sure people would love to tell, tell us that we are, but we're not. Uh, and uh, we just happened to vote for him twice. I happen to have voted for every single Labour leader who's won uh, when I've been allowed to, apart from Tony Blair, who I could never bring myself to vote for, but that's a different matter. But yes, this is a fundamental issue. It's a, it's a fundamental issue of freedom of expression and the right of a former leader of the Labour Party to actually take issue with a report uh, and for the, the, for the damning of his name. Um, and so, yes, uh, Ian and I, um, for anybody just joining us, have actually just suspended ourselves from the Labour Party. Uh, we are not uh, going to send our membership subscriptions to the Labour Party. I'm personally going to send my money, I think, to Jeremy Corbyn's legal uh, fund, which uh, the last count was nearing 400 odd thousand pounds. So um, there you are, Mr. Starmer. There you are, Mr. Starmer, from two Labour loyalists with 86 years of membership between us. This is our message to you. We hope that you listen. Um, I just heard, from, there's a message here from Jocelyn Herndl. Uh, Jocelyn, thank you very much for getting in touch. She says, thanks so much. I'm suspending my membership too and contributing to the legal fund. This seems the only way. Great talk and encouraging to hear it today after a grim day for, for about the party for the, and for the Labour Party. So there we are. That's from uh, that's from Jocelyn. Jocelyn, thank you. We we know about uh, your loss in Palestine, by the way. Um, also, and and we feel and, and our very best to you and the family, and 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 in your struggle, your continuing struggle for for justice. Uh, we also have here. Um, there's another question from Eddie O'Sullivan, which I'll come to in a minute. Uh, there's uh, if you go and want to look at the petition that Ian has just launched. You can go online, it's there, HTTP, it's www.change.org. Sakir Starmer, reinstate Jeremy Corbyn, or we stop paying our Labour Party dues. Uh, so there we are, that's the uh, petition. If, if other people want to join it and, uh, and to spread it, <coughs> to withhold our membership fees until Corbyn is reinstated. Uh, Eddie O'Sullivan uh, sends in a question, what chance is there that his suspension will be reversed? Well, I don't know if we've managed to achieve that in the past, past minutes, but what do you think? Do you think, do you think that there's a, chance, there's a chance that this could be reversed? What would it mean for the Labour Party, Ian, if it is? Well, it's, it would save the Labour Party if it is. Uh, there's two channels. One is the National Executive, I understand, meets in two weeks. And they will look across at Keir Starmer behind closed doors and say, what the hell have you done? And they might even look to Dave Evans and say, hey, you've just sabotaged it. You've lost half our membership. Go take a walk, a long walk, and don't come back. Mm. That's a hopeful scenario. The other one is that uh, Jeremy, who is horribly reluctant to take aggressive action like this, goes to court and gets an injunction on the grounds of natural justice and many other things and forces the Labour Party officials. It's not the Labour Party. People say he's suing the Labour Party. He's not. He's suing basically a self-appointed clique 
who were, which was elected on false pretenses. Keir Starmer said unity. He appointed Dave Evans, who doesn't believe in unity. Dave Evans is in hock with the people who sabotaged the Labour Party and sabotaged the anti-Semitism investigations beforehand. They are the ones who were actually excoriated in the, in the uh, Human Rights Commission report. They failed to act on these things. And it was against the wishes of Corbyn. They were trying to sabotage Corbyn. That's been quite clear. But he's issued edict after edict saying Labour Party branches can't discuss this. Labour Party branches can't put it up. Labour Party website can't carry the news of this. Um, this is Orwellian. You, you're not allowed to discuss it. It's one thing. I mean, I would, I would be very, very angry even if I agreed with what has happened that somebody tells me I can't discuss it. But, you know, we're in different times. We're in Trump well, times. We're in Keir Starmer times. We, we, we will be discussing this and other issues, and we will actually be returning to this uh, particular issue because of its uh, significance here in Britain, but also its wider ramifications for... Uh, the campaign for justice in the Middle East and the, and, and the support for Palestinian rights and self-determination. So we will be returning to this with uh, the, uh, the president of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign early next week, um, and also um, the author of the report in the Middle East Monitor today, uh, which looks at the report in greater detail uh, and actually does a lot of the spade work that the much of the British uh, press is clearly incapable or simply unwishing, uh, simply doesn't wish to do. And that, of course, is another problem of our times. We can come to that another time, is that it's very difficult to get serious discussion about serious issues if you have a herd mentality uh, in sections of the British media. And I'd just like to say, personally, before, I, before we go, before we finish today, the role of the Guardian newspaper in Britain in recent years in connection with this and other issues has been so very, very deeply disappointing. Uh, and I suspect that the Guardian has lost a huge number of readers uh, uh, and supporters because of its very, very, uh, very, very hostile attitude towards the Labour Party and its recent leadership. So the Guardian is a loser. Um, I'm afraid that the Labour Party, uh, the machinery of the Labour Party is going to be a loser if lots of people keep on resigning or suspending their membership, as Ian and I have just done. Um, by the way, just before we go, um, Richard Sanders and Peter Oborn's piece is in Middle East Eye today. So if you want to read that piece, it's a very good article, www.middleeasteye.net, and have a look at that. It's a very, very good piece. Um, we're coming to the end of this week's uh, edition of Palestine Deep Dive. Thank you, thank you as ever to Omar, to Alex, um, to Kieran, uh, but particularly to our guest, uh, Ian Williams in New York, president of the Foreign Press Association. Oh, Diane Woodward says, uh, brilliant chat today. Thank you both. So thank you, Diane, for, 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 for being with us. And thank you to everybody else who's watching us around the world. And until next time, from Ian and myself, all the very best and goodbye.